this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Monday, October 29th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Let's check in on all those right-wing media sources claiming the spate of bombs sent through America were false flag operations. And Coulter, Rush Limbaugh, Michael Savage, Mark Levin all put forward the notion of, you know, seems kind of fishy to me. I think these packages are coming from the left. And that is a very serious thing, they all said. Now that we find out they come from not the left, but Van Meme Man, The line is, wow, egg on our face. We're very sorry. No, it's not. The line is, well, those bombs, they weren't really a serious thing. In fact, CNN, they were kind of babies about the whole deal. Here was Glenn Beck the other day before Van Meeman was caught. No, I'm really happy that none of them went off. I am so disgusted by the press, so hungry so excited that maybe this was done by someone on the right. When history shows us these kinds of things happen from Marxist, socialist, and uh, anarchists. All throughout history, that's who does pipe bombs. This is the most inept. It is more likely that this is someone who was either just a screw off as like, hey, you know, it'd be funny. Or somebody setting something up for an election. It's just as likely as it is to have somebody from the right that wanted to make a point and they're complete, you know, imbeciles. And here was right wing radio host Howie Carr before the man driving the meme machine was apprehended. First car guessed at this guy's motivation. The, the Democrats uh, were uh, were desperate to change the subject. Then Howie Carr turned to history as a guide. And the the people at CNN, I mean, you talk about drama queens. I mean, these people are making it out like they, they were really in some kind of terrible danger. They were, I, I guess they were close to, they were reduced to close to tears. And, uh, and now, uh, and now De Niro has gotten one. I mean, Seriously, I mean, who 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 thinks that De Niro is a uh, is is a threat? You know, I mean, do they really? Come on, again, no one's saying that uh, they should have sent these these uh, these packages to anybody. But is there is there any evidence that this is uh, that that this is some kind of uh, concerted plot by by Donald Trump people? I mean, there's again, the violence is all on the other side here. Isn't it? I mean, the the violence in in American political history is is approximately ninety percent Democrat, ninety ninety five percent Democrat, going back to the days of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. Why does a scheming, murderous son of a rat assassinate Hamilton? Because he's a Democrat. Carr then buttons it all up. With this crescendo, it's uh, it's going to be very it's going to be very interesting to see who is finally uh, who, who's finally caught here. And when it turns out he was caught, and the guy was Tragic Mike over there in Florida, Carr did not really seem interested in processing any new information. More like, well, 
That one unsupported supposition of last week earns this unsupported supposition of this week. Yeah, I, you know, the thing I don't like, I don't understand about that van is it, I spend a lot of time down in that neck of the woods. There, there is not, there are, there are a lot of Trump people down there, but they, the Trump people in South Florida are outnumbered. That's what the, that's what the whole Chad thing was about in 2000, excuse me. Because, you know, they, they thought that Al Gore should have won Broward. That's Broward County. That's, that's ground zero for the Chads in 2000. So how did that van remain pristine with all those stickers on it? They look pretty new, too, the stickers. I don't know where they came from. I'm going to be. you're saying they, they, they just put I, those stickers on there I, to frame him as a Trump no, guy? No, I, I'm just, no. Does seem like he is saying that, doesn't he? Also, this proves more than anything, you ready for this one, that Donald Trump was a peaceful man all along. But he's never exhorted anybody to get in someone's faces. He's never asked anybody to kick anybody. No, no, he's never said that. Here's some of what he did say. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them, would you? We're not allowed to punch back anymore. I'd like to punch him in the face, I'll tell you. See, never said kick. On the show today, I spiel about... The one factor that caused so many deaths in Pittsburgh, because I think we're debating intangible causes that can't quite be pinned down, we seem to take for granted that the worshippers were killed by a gun, a specific kind of gun at that. But first, Dan Bobkoff is here, and while the podcaster may not be at this moment a household name to you, he has the stories of several brands that are, in fact, household names. And he tells their stories in his podcast called I'd Like to Punch Him in the Face. No, wait. The podcast is called Household Name. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general, and he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak 
that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Brands, they're people too. So is the instruction of Dan Bobkoff, who is the man, who is the maestro, who is the reporter behind a new series that I have gotten into greatly. It is called Household Name, and it is the story. Let's take the story of a brand and turn it into, really, a biography. It's biography of brands. We have to assume a brand is people. Host Dan Bobkoff is, well, I can't say he's the host because that's a tautology, isn't it? Host Dan Bobkoff is our guide through the world of business. Hello, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Why? Why'd you get into this? Why were you oriented towards telling the story of a brand? So my background on this show is that I come from public radio like you. I what am do you mean the... my background on this show? <laughs> like, my background. So like I... invented story. Right. <laughs> Have you retconned your bio? <laughs> All right. So I, I came from public radio the way you did. I uh-huh. am the worst stereotype of a public radio reporter, and I don't actually frequent a lot of these brands. I I don't go to McDonald's. I don't, I know, I don't drink Coca-Cola that much. Then I end up at Business Insider and we have the screen in the office. You probably have it here at Slate too, where you can see what people are clicking on Mm -hmm. in America. And this should not have been a reminder, but it was news to me how much Americans care about mainstream brands, which which sounds ridiculous. I have to even say this, but, um, (laughs) And I was just amazed so at how much... it turns out Walmart is there and an ongoing concern because people actually they shop actually there? They actually shop there. And they care them? about it, too. Oh, my God. And they want to read everything about it. They want to read about internal, you know, what's happening in the company. They want to know right. what's happening in the store. They want to know tips. And so the genesis of this idea was Americans care about brands. We know that people like good storytelling and podcasting. What if you put them together into one show? And... The thesis really behind the show is that if you live in America, you live most of your life through brands. For better or worse, that is how we live in this country. A lot of, you know, very important moments in your life happen through brands. You are, you know, every day you're probably touching tons of brands and you you know, you have some sort of identity tied to these yeah, brands. Especially if you're a shoplifter. But there are some ba- brands people are interested and want to know. There are some brands that are loved and they have cult followings and Apple and Yeti camping equipment and stuff like that. But then there are some some other brands that are just like the background hum and thrum of our life. And what's interesting is, well, they weren't always so. So TGA Fri- TGI Fridays, which, you know, there are many knockoffs and what separates that from a Chili's. I know we'll get people writing in about jalapeno quality. But is it loved? I have no idea. But the point is, it once was. And so excavating that story, I thought, was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, not only was it once loved, it played this really important part in American history that was totally news to me until we started looking into this. So in the 1960s, TGI Fridays comes in the middle of the sexual revolution. The founder of TGI Fridays didn't realize he was coming at this point in history. He just happened to be at the right place at the right time on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, of all places, which is not necessarily where you would expect this chain that we now associate with uh, suburbia to start. But he starts this restaurant because there was this sad bar on the Upper East Side, and he's like, I can't get a date. And, you know, he was 28 years old. sad man in a sad bar. (laughs) He was selling a... I think he called them uh, fragrances. That these are the kinds of uh, like the kinds of scents that you put into medicine. And he couldn't meet women. And he would see that there was this uh, building there that was then called the Stew Zoo. This was where a lot of flight attendants for Braniff and these hot airlines of the '60s were living. And, right. Uh, they were living four in an apartment because they were all in different shifts. 
And he's like, why don't people meet each other at bars? And it's actually, for straight people at least, until this period, it was not a thing to go to a bar and meet people. Right. And so your, your story is not just about a bar, but about the idea of being a, a young woman who doesn't have to have arranged for her through the social circles a meeting with a gentleman caller. Exactly. It's about the idea of going out to a singles bar. Right, and there was so much stigma around this until this point that if you yeah. went to a bar, if you were a woman who went to a bar alone, you were seen, you know, you know, you might even be uh, called up for vice charges or something, yes. especially a few years before that. Best of flu. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So he he starts this bar and he makes this place that is welcoming to men and women, and it becomes this really hot thing. There was almost this. Uh, this this pent up demand in the city because it was so hard. You know, you had to go to these cocktail parties, and it was not easy to meet people. And you know, I I called in the episode. It was sort of the Tinder of the '60s. It was yeah. the hot thing. And like Tinder, there were imitators that sprung up uh, almost immediately. I think within a year, you have a uh, a number of other bars that start on that same block, and they have to they have to actually stop traffic on the weekend. And I think it was New York Magazine that called it the Fertile Crescent <laughs> of New York. Then, t- then you, of course, you can't launch a series in 2018 without, you know, within 10 episodes tackling the pumpkin spice latte. But what spice did you want to bring to it? Uh, what, what spice? What angle? Uh, nutmeg. No, what I was fascinated by with a pumpkin spice latte is like, why, why this one drink? Why did this become the symbol of being basic? And actually, one of the interesting things making this episode is it helped me realize who knows what the term basic means. Yeah. And even the, even the, some of the people who worked on this drink, we interviewed the guy who invented the pumpkin spice latte. I'm not sure if he didn't want to admit that he knows or if he was trying to create an alternate definition well, but for those very the demographic of people who would know basic don't include food scientists in their 50s right so yeah. so the best definition i've heard is you have the most mainstream of taste and yet you think you have taste yeah yeah that's sort of the insult version of the basic uh, of the basic descriptor and so if you don't know i mean the pumpkin spice latte every fall it comes around and a whole lot of people they put it on their instagram or their snapchat and they do hashtag psl hashtag #basic and i was interested why did that drink of all things become the symbol of this yeah and it's really interesting how it comes at this moment where you have the rise of instagram culture it is a seasonal drink. It is a destination. So it marks the changing seasons in the year. It's like the shamrock shake for a new millennium. Exactly. But, but what I really wanted to do in that episode, which uh, we, we just about pulled off, is I wanted to ask the guy who invented the pumpkin spice latte how he feels about this. And if you listen to it, you can hear it's not exactly what he had in mind. Yeah. He's a little defensive. Yeah. Uh, that it's might a be little a little tinge of remorse. Exactly. Yeah. So what makes a great household name episode? To me, it has to say something larger about life and culture and how we live. Yeah. The uh, Pizza Hut episode is, it's about how Donald Trump and Ivana Trump did an ad for Pizza Hut in the 90s, but it also, in a larger sense, helps explain where we are today and why this guy would do this ad at that time in his life and where that fits on the timeline that is a few steps away from the presidency. Was this stuffed crust pizza? Stuffed crust pizza. And and from what I understand from your story, they were having, it seems like a no-brainer and who wouldn't like it? It's America. We're going to like stuffed crust pizza. But before explaining it through that ad, it wasn't successful? The The product? The genius of the ad was the idea of eating the pizza backwards. Right. And before that, people are like, what's the point of this crust? It's just, you know, there's cheese on top of the pizza. Why do I need cheese in the pizza crust as well? 
and it didn't sell until maybe, they <laughs> maybe you could argue you don't need it but <laughs> <laughs> why would I want it uh, but yeah I mean before this uh, crazy ad that takes place in the Plaza Hotel in I think it was 95 1995 featuring Donald and his ex-wife uh, they uh, look like they're about to have an affair with each other four years after they got divorced instead they're just about to eat pizza the wrong way seems like a ridiculous ad and we go on this this journey that helps explain you know why the ad was made why he said yes to this ad where it fits in the chronology of him being uh, which I think I can objectively say he was a terrible businessman at this point. I yeah, mean, he at was, that uh, point. Unlike yeah, in 1995. He, unlike and, all the winning that he's visited upon us and himself until then. Yes, but he was in, in mired in bankruptcy. He shows up in a few episodes, doesn't he? Yeah, surprisingly so sometimes. <laughs> You're not always sure how he's going to end up, but he has been a ubiquitous part of our lives, uh, maybe more than we realized till now. And tell me, and what is the deal with Mattress Firm, by the way? What is the deal with Mattress Firm? So we did a Mattress Firm episode right before they declared bankruptcy. And I think that is that is a correlation, not a causation. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but you know, we were fascinated that people were obsessed with trying to figure out why there are so many mattress firms. That You would see these Reddit threads where people were like amateur detectives drawing maps and doing back-of-the-envelope calculations and trying to figure out like how... How could there possibly be so many mattress yeah. firms? How you know, could you have that so red many thread? That once you get the red <laughs> thread in your little studio and you connect the mattress firms with different pieces of red thread, you know you're on something. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean there there are places where I think there was one spot where there were six mattress firms within a three mile radius, five five right by each other. Yeah. And so people were wondering, you know, is there something else going on here? How are they really making their money? Yeah. They can't possibly because sell it's that not many like a mattresses. Star where they open a Starbucks inside another Starbucks, but they're doing business. I mean, you could see all the people going into a Starbucks. Mattress firm is you got the same two, you know, Romanian uh, mattress dealers blowing a butt outside uh, at any at any point of the day. They seem not to have that much foot traffic, shall we say. Your word's not mine. Yeah. No, but I mean, part of this is just economics, that you can make enough money selling very few mattresses. You know, they don't have a lot of staff there. Uh, they also serve kind of as billboards for this brand. But it's but doesn't also... Any, doesn't any retail retailer do that? Yeah. Like, like it's a billboard I mean, the margins are... Right, but the margins are so high that they can sometimes afford to sell one or two a day and still be more or less break-even. But also they they aggressively expanded. They bought up all these competitors so quickly that they didn't even think about, you know, where the Sleepies is next to the mattress firm. Then they bought Sleepies, and then now they're across the street from each other. And so what we saw with the bankruptcy is actually this is not a conspiracy like people like to believe. They want to believe this is some sort of money laundering conspiracy, but there's no evidence of that. In reality, it was just not very good at business. They were just uh, over-aggressive, over-expanding, and now you see them, they declare bankruptcy and they're closing a lot of stores. What I will say, though, is that there is an interesting asterisk here is that they were bought by this South African company called Steinhoff, and Steinhoff is being investigated for financial irregularities around the world. They are having major problems right now. They're and the second biggest furniture company after IKEA. That's right. Yeah. And uh, you know, I think they don't go by the Steinhoff brand in most places, but right. they own a lot of other brands. And so people were wondering, why did they spend so much money for Mattress Firm at a time when Mattress Firm had all this new competition from every podcast sponsor you can think of? And you know, they, they spent, I think... Um, 
I have to check this, but I think it was three times what most people thought it was valued at. Maybe it was twice what people thought the company was valued at. So that raised a lot of questions. And so there is something to look at there, but the popular Reddit conspiracy theory seems to be bunk. And can you answer this? Why has Arby's become a punchline? Like Simpson, it's the go-to Simpsons joke. People think of it as like the lowest rung of the fast food ladder. I like Arby's. Are they below Taco Bell or above? No, I think they're below. Wow. Maybe people don't want to be seen as picking on Taco Bell, but Taco Bell is some cachet, some Chihuahua Chalupa Dorito cachet. I think Arby's is really just the whipping boy of the fast food world. But I mean, Arby's is smart, though. I mean, mean, remember when Jon Stewart was leaving The Daily Show and they actually embraced all his attacks on that and ran ads on the last episode? I mean, they know how to play this. I mean, there's yeah, why it's still true that, that there's... Why did they make so many Arby's jokes? Why wouldn't you? Because it doesn't, to me, <laughs> it's no, to me, Jack in the Box is worse. To me, you know, McDonald's, I know it's ubiquitous, but McDonald's isn't even as delicious as Arby's. I like Arby's. You know what I find fascinating? These brands now have to have personalities online. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes like the personality... ironic personalities, like yeah, or Denny's. Some, or I think it was... <laughs> um, it was Chili's yeah. that, for whatever reason, people would ask them about the American healthcare system, and then they would start <laughs> explaining deductibles on their Facebook page. And it was just like, I get all my, I get all my healthcare knowledge from Chili's. And then you have, uh, you know, Wendy's is sort of like the mean girl on Twitter, and then. <laughs> And then you have Carl's Jr., which is, like, trying to be at the cool kids' table, but isn't always succeeding. And they, like, try to do the same tactics as these other companies. And then, like, Wendy's will just shut them down and make fun of them. And it just feels like like these, like, fast food social media is, like, the worst middle school cafeteria you've ever been to. Wouldn't it be funny if Humana Health or Blue Cross, Blue Shield just inverted the Arby's, uh, the Chili's thing and began recommending, you know, fries topped with gravy as part of their, as part of their Twitter presence. I mean, that would, uh, I mean, I would believe anything at this point. Yeah. Dan Popkoff is the host of Household Name, a new podcast that's part of the Business Insider Podcasting Network. Concern, shall we say. What a brand. Dan, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And now, the spiel. The reasons why a right-wing extremist high on internet hate rushed into a Pittsburgh synagogue and killed 11 people will forever be lost in the synapses of a sickened mind. Reason, I said reason or reasons, that's the wrong word. He was egged on by self-perceived victimhood status. That's what the Gab web forum told him over and over. Of course, we're living in a climate of hatred. The causes for that can forever be debated. I certainly think the man at the top contributes to it. So why, though, were 11 people killed? I can offer one very strong explanation, stronger than most of the other suppositions that are out there. They were killed because of a gun, specifically the type of gun. Oh, had the killer armed himself with a pistol or a shotgun or even a semi-automatic handgun, he may have been able to kill many victims, uh, maybe even as many victims, But statistics paint a different picture. It does seem like we're spending a lot of time debating climates of hate and presidential responsibility and internet sites. Those are good debates to have. But guns are a much more proximate cause of these deaths. And talk of internet sites and especially 
climates of hate. That was already in the ether in the days before the Pittsburgh synagogue shootings. And they were in the ether because of that would-be Florida bomber. But let's note that the would-be Florida bomber had zero victims except our own imaginations, whereas the Pittsburgh shooter had 11 victims. So AR-15 wielder killed 11, bomb maker killed zero. Maybe there's less debate about guns and the type of gun because we feel we're debated out on this subject. We know where that debate goes. And we also know that even with a ban on AR-15s, there would still be deaths. Of course there would. And I will acknowledge that the killing of 10 people at Santa Fe High School in Texas a few months ago involved no AR-15s. And that of the five deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history, one of them the Virginia Tech massacre also included no semi-automatic rifles, just semi-automatic pistols. That is true. But of every other mass shooting with at least 10 dead in the AR-15 era, which I'll define in a second, every other mass shooting, the vast, vast majority of victims were killed by shooters wielding Sig Sauer MCXs or Bushmaster XM-15s or Smith & Wesson MMP assault rifles or DPMS Panther Arms assault rifles, AR-15 style weapons. What is the AR-15 era that I just spoke of? Well, people who look at gun usage and the popularity of guns point to one specific mass slaughter. It happened in 1989 and it is a notable point in the AR-15's appeal. I don't know that there's any precedent for this anywhere in public school history. And I regret that it was at Stockton. That was a school administrator talking about a school shooting in 1989 at the Cleveland Elementary School where five students were killed and 32 others were wounded. Back in 1989, school shootings were so rare as to be unfathomable to most Americans. A decade later came the attacks on Columbine High School, and they ushered in school shootings or school attacks as a much more common phenomenon. But in 1989, even if that didn't immediately lead to a spate of school shootings, it did give notable inspiration in one area, the weapon used. The killing machine was this AK-47 with bayonet. Carved into the barrel was the word Hezbollah, the name of an Iranian terrorist group. There were also the words freedom and victory. On ammo clips were other slogans, including evil and humanoids. Before 1989, few Americans, even gun enthusiasts, knew that such weapons like the AK-47 or its American rival, the AR-15, were available for consumer use. Gun magazines kind of looked down on these weapons and sales were far from brisk. Here's one indication of that. After that school shooting in 1989, manufacturers of the AR-15 suspended production for a year. The product was a laggard among their offerings and they didn't want its presence to threaten their overall business. Now guns like the AR-15 are the dominant business and they dominate the deadliest shootings in history. If you look at all the mass shootings with 10 or more dead and you take out ones that occurred before the AR-15 was in wide circulation, like the uh, Texas Tower shooting or ones where Uzis were available and preferred, like uh, the McDonald's shooting, and start your count in 2004, which was after the assault weapons ban ended, you have 15 shootings, including this one in Pittsburgh with 10 or more victims. Of these 15 shootings, some did not include an AR-15 type weapon. Virginia Tech, 
Fort Hood. Sadly, we should note the first Fort Hood mass shooting. The Red Lake Reservation shooting, the Washington Navy Yard shooting, uh, Binghamton shooting. Those did not include an AR-15 weapon. But Pulse, Las Vegas, Sandy Hook, Sutherland Springs, the Aurora Movie Theater, all the others were with an AR-15. In these mass shootings, defined as more than 10 dead during the AR-15 era, which I mean after the assault weapons ban expired, and with more than 10 people dead, there have been a total of 314 people killed in these shootings. Of those, 223, or 71%, were killed by shooters who primarily used an AR-15-type weapon. I'll acknowledge all the counter-arguments, like mass shootings are a tiny fraction of overall shootings. That is true. AR-15s aren't even used in most mass shootings. How the FBI defines mass shootings. That is true. If shooters didn't use an AR-15, shooters would still kill people. Absolutely true. But that's a large part of my point. They would kill fewer people. I think we could prove they would kill far fewer people. And that wouldn't just mean that there'd be more people walking the earth. It would mean it would dominate our worry, our anxiety, our psyche much less than it does. Two months after Stoneman Douglas, there was another school shooting in Maryland. I remember I was on TV. There was breaking news. Oh my God, what must this mean? And there were two people dead, including the shooter. Why only two people dead? Because he used a handgun. Two months after that, there was a middle school, middle school shooter. He leaves class, he comes back, he shoots a teacher and another student, and then he's wrestled to the ground. Both those victims survive, by the way. Why? The guns were handguns. You've got to believe that an AR-15, which is designed to be much more deadly, would, in fact, have been much more deadly. There are consistently lower death tolls in shootings where the weapons were designed to have lower death tolls than the AR-15. It turns out that the AR-15 military-style weapon, which was designed to kill lots of people, does that and does that well. It is an extremely popular weapon, and not because it doesn't do what it was designed to do. The reason we care, in fact, more than care, the reason that we're grieving, the reason that we feel like we've had our hearts ripped out by all these mass killings should be that they're killings. Should be that we equally grieve every person taken from us because of violence, but that's not how it works. That's not how the human psyche works, or at least not how the 2018 United States of America psyche, habituated as it is to shootings, works. I have watched a couple dozen debates this election cycle from all across the country. Whenever they have an opportunity to have citizens ask questions, Someone always asks, how do we make our schools safe? And the reason that they ask this question is not because the schools aren't safe. It's because high-profile mass shootings make us think the schools aren't safe. It is occupying our attention, our anxiety, and that is something to be addressed. And the reason that mass shootings have such a hold on our psyche isn't that they're shootings, it's that they're mass. It's that, that there are so many victims in any particular shooting. And the reason that there are so many victims in so many of these shootings, to a significant degree, is the AR-15. Ban the AR-15 or just get used to more bloodshed. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader, who, to be fair, have never advocated that you bite anyone else or interrupt any elected official's meal by biting their entrees. 
TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. She refuses to be that basic girl who drinks pumpkin spiced lattes, but she has been known to hollow out a full pumpkin and fill it with latte and sip from it throughout the day. The gist. The idiocy of stuffed crust pizza is that if you eat it backwards, then eventually you're just clutching the cheesy, saucy part. I stuck to the Trump salad taco bowl. What I do is I eat it slowly from the south, rushing past any defenses the taco shell provides. Oh, it is a veritable caravan of flavor. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.